to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rita L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 16. Today we welcome Dr. Sonia M. Sloan, better known as hashtag orthodox. She has established herself as a force to be reckoned with in the male-dominated field of orthopedic surgery. She is licensed to practice medicine in several states. She travels the country to extend the impact of her unique approach to patient care, including locum tenens and telemedicine, one of the first ventures of its kind. Dr. Sloan is the quintessential fusion of her love for medicine and her passion to help others. Her work in medicine and as an entrepreneur in the community and internationally is demonstrated through her medical clinic in Haiti, Two nonprofits, Me and We Incorporated, motivating and empowering women to excel, where she's mentored nearly 100 women to become entrepreneurs, and Sloan STEM Plus Arts, a summer camp to expose and ensure the future of minorities' physical sustainability. She believes in paying it forward, which is a direct example of her book. The Rules of Medicine, and Medical Professional's Guide to Success. She is also the first lady to Dr. Timothy Sloan of the Luke Church in Houston, Texas, and supermom to her three favorite people, her children. You are amazing on so many aspects. I am so grateful that you took time from your busy schedule to join me. Let's get started. Welcome again. Thank you for having me. So what made you go into orthopedic surgery? I was very active as a kid in high school. I was a lifetime gymnast, competitive gymnast, and then was in high school cheerleading and track. So track and field, I made it to regionals and hurdles in Texas. And the last hurdle clearing and hit my knee, sublux my patella, which you know, basically just like knocked it out. And so had, they thought was a meniscus tear just did not rehab well over the next three months. So kept seeing this new orthopedic surgeon. He was nice. He was cute, you know, but my mom was a nurse. And so in my hometown, Denison, Texas, small town, USA, less than 20,000 people. I never saw a black doctor. I never saw a female doctor. Never? So, not in Denison, Texas. So I didn't know it was a possibility to even be a doctor, to be honest. And again, this is, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And so Dr. Black was his name, and he was just a gentle giant. He was great with me. He had a great personality, and he really impressed upon me the fact that maybe I should consider orthopedics. So he was the first exposure to ortho for me was through an injury. But he let me know that there wasn't a lot of women in orthopedics. So I thought, okay, cool. And so it stuck with me. And as time progressed, I never knew we're not supposed to be orthopedic surgeon because you weren't a man. You know? mm-hmm. It just, the stars lined up and everything was perfect and doors opened and it fell into place for me. So how old were you when you saw your first female orthopedic surgeon? Do you remember? 
Wow, that's a great question. The first time I ever saw a female orthopod, I was actually in my residency training. Okay. You know that? That was actually my residency training. And she actually was working at Shriners Hospital. She was very curt to the point, very concise, you know, kind of person. And it was no favoritism. You know, it wasn't just because I was a woman that she was going to give me any favoritism. But she definitely would every now and then sort of, you should be doing this. She would every now and then lean over and you should probably know that kind of thing. So another question, when's the first time you saw a black female orthopedic surgeon? Ooh, that's a great one too. I was a research year of orthopedic surgery. So my general surgery year, 2000 to 2001, they sent me to the first Ruth Jackson orthopedic surgery conference in Chicago, which as you know, is all women orthopods. So I was so excited just to go see women orthopods, had no expectation. And then who was there speaking, but our own audience? Dr. Simpson? Mm-hmm. Bunny? And, um, no. Oh, Claudia Thomas. Claudia Thomas and Bernita Johnson. Okay. So Bernita was doing foot and ankle, and then they were honoring Dr. Thomas. Oh, wonderful. So I was impressed, you know, like, there's somebody who looks like me. But that was 2000. That was the first time wow. I graduated in 2006. So that was sort of surreal. But even at that point, I still didn't know that we were a black diamond. <laughs> I didn't realize that we were very rare and few. I had no idea. My first experience was when I was a medical student presenting research in California at SMA. And Letitia Bradford was a resident at the time. And I was like, wow, (laughs) when I'm there. Wow. So that would have been because we were around the same time. I think she came out in 05. I came out in 06. So that would have been probably around the same time. So speaking of diamond. Tell me a little about an organization that was recently formed. Black Women Orthopedic Surgeons. And you are the vice president. Tell me a little bit about why it was formed and why it was formed and what your primary purpose is. Okay, so BWS, what we're called the Black Women Orthopedic Surgeons, this summer, 2000, was at a height of a racial divide in the United States. And so in the midst of all of that, on top of, you know, the political climate, on top of a global pandemic, a lot of the Black female orthopods found themselves on social media, you know, trying to connect, if anything else. And Dr. Ida Brown came to a point where she's like, I just need some support. And so she's the founder, basically, and says, if I can pull them all together. And slowly, one by one, she started pulling us together. And in July was the first conversation that we had. And it was so enlightening. It was so uplifting. And it was so the connectivity, you know, for us. It was like just electricity and we were all just drawn to it. And as we progressed, it was like, it's only about 75 of us in the country. Out of 30,000 plus orthopedic surgeons, there are only about 75 black female orthopedic surgeons. And some of those were actually residents in training. Mm -hmm. I think we're up to the number 83 right now and we may be missing a few, but nonetheless, it's less than 100. We realized that we needed some empowerment and we needed some support on the educational side, the health you know, of our mind, our spirit kind of thing, as well as to advocate for ourselves, if that's political, social, emotional, whatever that was. And so we came together and officially formed. By October, we had our first national meeting on, mm-hmm. on our Zoom platform, you know, kind of the virtual international meeting. We had people from all over the world 
on that call, over 240 people. And it was just phenomenal for people to listen to the statistics, background, some of the reasons why we are rare and we are black diamonds, not just because of the color of our skin, but the fact that those stones are so precious and so hard to find and actually are more fragile than a regular diamond, but still are very, very resilient. So it spoke to who we were. Part of the reason I formed this podcast is to talk to people who have overcome obstacles. To make it to their finish lines. So I just want to ask you about residency and training and how you got to where you are today and some of the obstacles just in surgery and being a diamond, how things might have been more difficult. Mm, That's a loaded question. You know that. My surgical residency, I was the first female intern in general surgery at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. We were a top 10 residency program. I got waitlisted to go to Rush in general surgery, actually. I didn't match an ortho, so I took a general surgery spot. And so as life happens, my husband has sort of threatened me that if I was to move again, he wasn't going with me. So last minute, I kid you not, doors open up and literally God made a way. And mm-hmm. a Baylor College of Medicine general surgery called me and gave me the one-year position, transitional okay. year. So I think I worked my ass off that year. And I was sitting in our level one trauma, Bentov Hospital. I remember where I was. It was in March. And the guy that was in ortho, he was doing his general surgery year, was getting married and his wife was anesthesia. And he decided he didn't want to do ortho. He didn't want to work that kind of hard. He was really looking to get out of medicine kind of thing. And so I just happened to be in the room when he made the call and resigned as an orthopedic surgery resident. Okay. So he was supposed to do a year of research. So I immediately picked up the phone, called my chief resident in general surgery and says, I need to go and put some affairs in order and take my resume, my CV to the ortho department. So that was around one o'clock. By five o'clock, I was in the ortho department dropping off my CV. And Dr. Ronald Lindsay was the acting chair at the time. And his secretary sort of looked at me like, Nobody even knows this position is open yet. How do you know? So I went up against 25 guys. I was the only female they interviewed. And it was like a two-part interview. But in the end, I got the job. And so residency was hard. I did a year of research uh, before I started my ortho. So I did shoulder and elbow research project that did get published within a year of my research project, which helped. You know that helped. Uh, And then I also did a project with NASA, which was about intermittent resistant exercise device that's on the space station, International Space Station. So we looked at different holster monitors and holsters and how their vests would strap them in to exercise and what kind of resistance they were getting. And so those were my two projects. And that boded well for my years through ortho to help me, you know, have some clout, if you will. But by no means were the next five years of my life easy. If I had to do it all again, I probably would not. Really? And I'd be very, very, very honest. It was brutal. Not just the, I was definitely before the 80-hour work week. I'm old school. (laughs) So there was no 80-hour work week. It was uh, 120 hours, 130 hours, sometimes out of 100 and, you know, Mm -hmm. 42 hours a week, um, 164 hours. And I was determined to finish. But the question was, at what cost? During my residency, I almost got a divorce. I was never home. Mm -hmm. I've had a miscarriage that no one ever knew about because you're in the boys club and I was the only girl at the time. So I couldn't really talk to anybody. Jennifer Weiss had just graduated. And then like when I was a third year, really get into surgical. 
So I was left. I was the last one. And then Selena Poon was on her way in. She was an intern, but she was doing her general surgery stuff. So I was pretty much a lone ranger, holding your own, believing in yourself, working extra hard to be a good surgeon, a good clinician, and trying to prove yourself day in, day out, nonstop. It's tedious at best. And you didn't have anybody that looked like you or really was that reinforcing. And there was a few of the docs that were, you know, really good to me that really helped me out that would, you know, be my backup and my support. But I definitely had the other, the naysayers, the literally I had the ones that told me, you know, we don't want you here. I had one of those. I had one that basically says we will put you in peds or rehab medicine, but we don't need you in ortho. A woman shouldn't be in orthopedics. This is one of your attendants? One of my attendants, joint attending. Yeah, I was tried. They almost tried to fire me a couple of times, but it was one of those that I was persistent. And I was also very good at documenting things. Rule number 23 in the rules of medicine, CYA, cover your ass, right? So it was about documenting. There was a lot of physical, not necessarily, I never got hit, punched in the face or anything else. I was hit by a staff member with a pair of Debakey pickups in surgery over my top of my hand. That was investigated, but nothing ever happened of it because I knew in that moment that if I responded the wrong way, I would not obtain what I wanted, which was to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then I would also possibly close the door for other black female orthopedic surgeons. So it was sort of taken, if you will. So, yeah, it was very, very hard. It was very, very hard. What I will say of my residency training at Baylor College of Medicine was exceptional in the sense of a level one trauma in top. It was the county hospital. The VA, largest one in the country, joints and every element that you can imagine, procedures that I got to do. Texas Children's, number four in the country. Two private entities that were St. Luke's and Methodist, largest you know, in the medical center. Shriners Hospital, excellent as far as some of the things you'll never see again <laughs> in children as far as kids and that kind of stuff. And then a slew of other opportunities to work in with some private guys. So I had an excellent training. And that I was very secure in who I was and what I could do. That's good. My residency was a hostile work environment. That's a nice way to put it. That is a good, um, that's a good way. And I believe I really had post-traumatic stress disorder after I graduated. So after you left residency, tell me about, you're a locum tenant physician, and can you explain what that is to my listeners who may not be in medicine or are familiar with it? Yeah, so hostile work environment, you're right. So I took a contract position with a facility in Houston. It was on the outer skirts of Houston, making very good money. But I was going to be like almost like a hospitalist orthopod. And I was hardly at home. I hardly saw my family. And then almost got like blacklisted or blackballed by the outside groups because they didn't want to share business, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when I realized I wasn't going to make the money to pay back whatever they were requesting that the initial amount. I decided to sort of take off some time. I just had a new child and I wanted to be mom. You know, after 15 years, I wanted to be mom. Four years of college, four years of medical school, year of general surgery, year of research, five years of ortho. I just wanted to be mom, you know. So I did that for four or five months. And then, which wasn't really popular, was something called locum tenens. And in medicine, it's one thing, but in surgery, it just was almost unheard of. So it was just up and coming, if you will, that had been around for a while, but not a lot of people were doing it. So I took my first job in Kansas, made great money and, you know, worked like three, four months straight. And I traveled back and forth home and out of Kansas and took off the rest of the year, you know, made that kind of money. And then I thought, well, this is good. Then got pregnant, had my second child, took off for six months, you know. 
then went back, started doing locums again, and then took another sort of semi-permanent job in Louisiana, worked there for years and had a great relationship with them off and on for five years. So I was able to live life as a locum tenens, which is a traveling physician, but at the same time, start doing other things. And so I had previous experience as an entrepreneur. So I started looking at some other business opportunities. My husband is a pastor of a, a mega church in Houston. And so our church was growing along with some of the strife and the battles that you have to fight along the way with growth. So it allowed me to be present for that. And then, you know, the nonprofits I started initially was for women and then helping other women starting to become entrepreneurs, which I still do. Tell me about that. It's called Me and We Incorporated. Yeah, me and we is called Motivating and Empowering Women to Excel. The me part was take care of yourself first. How do you motivate and empower yourself daily and in life and what you're doing? And then once you've sort of figured that out, how do you pay it forward and help the we, other women, to excel? And so it's a great program that looked at your health, your spirituality, your finances, because those are the things that sort of make us as women that keep us motivated and empowered, basically. So we had an entrepreneur type of program that helped the finances. We talked money, you know, gave exposure to different business women and that kind of thing. Health, of course, you know, was almost like a webinar based kind of talking platform. And then spirituality was not just church because, you know, I don't believe your spirituality is really about your religion. It's about who you are, your essence of who you are, from how you feel, how you, you know, your self-esteem to how you see life as a totality. So we help women with that. And so over the past 10 years, we've reached on the average of 5,000 in our following. Last year was a year that we were starting to close it down. And so now it's ramped up to just more of an entrepreneurial kind of thing. It's called Next Level, which is helping women still start their businesses and strategically mentored. So where did you get your entrepreneurial spirit? My dad, I guess. I'm not sure where I got the entrepreneurial spirit from. I saw my dad and my grandfather having businesses when I was little, you know and understanding money and that kind of thing. But when I got waitlisted out of Texas Tech, I was a chemistry major and just knew I was getting into medical school and got waitlisted. So went home that summer. I was dating a football player. And my parents were like, you know, you need to come to church. And it's like, well, my pastor had died. And so our church that I had grown up at, I didn't want to go to a new church. You know, I didn't want to meet new people or whatever else. I was sort of in flux and limbo. And I think I called myself being mad at God. You know, it's like you disappointed me. So that day we went to church and, you know, I'm literally being the something out of college, just sort of half in, half out, you know, mm-hmm. just partying kind of thing. And I walked to the aisle, you know, this minister. And so I'm like, sort of like, who is that? You know, my mom's like, that's little Tim. And I was like, little Tim. She's like, you remember your cousin, Marcus's best friend, you know, when Marcus moved to Ohio in Tim stayed in contact. And he was apparently my cousin's best friend. Growing up, and I do remember even my mom dropping my cousin off at his house, but we never knew each other because we went to different high schools. So, but we knew each other when we were from sort of like the same hometowns, Twin Cities kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, your story after church, there's this woman that sang a beautiful song, Eye on the Sparrow. You know, she sang mm-hmm. it perfect pitch, gorgeous. So, after church, I'm talking to her and I was like, please, I want you to sing at my wedding when, and whatever. She's like, so when is the wedding? I was like, I said, well, I don't have a man, but when I get one, I want you to sing at my wedding, you know, stuff. And the next person I talked to was Tim Sloan. And how long have you been married? 24 years this year. That's an amazing story. Divine intervention again. Again, again. And so I'm wedding. He's, she's singing our wedding, but during that interim of summer, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, Tim and I were dating. So I was back and forth to Princeton University in uh, New Jersey. And so they had all these coffee houses and 
every corner there was a coffee house. We're not talking Starbucks. We're talking the cute boutique kind of coffee houses, really unique, you know, jazz playing and dimly lit and whatever, but very nice, very inviting to me. And so I came home and I was going to take a job in New Brunswick at Johnson & Johnson, ironically, in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so I was an organic chem. And I came home to tell my parents, break the news to them, that I was moving to New Jersey. So I thought. Okay. <laughs> so it's like I said, can we go somewhere and talk? And, you know, I had this whole proposal and timeline and all this stuff. And then my mom's like, well, where do you want to go? I said, is there a coffee house there? And she's like, no, she's, there's a Denny's and there's an IHOP. And that's it. You know, but we had junior college and we had a Boston college there and a lot of young people there. So I'm like, why do we not have a coffee house? So we started talking about that on top of the other thing. And then my parents were pretty much like, you know, if you want to go to New Jersey, that's fine. But is there anything else you want to do? And I was like, I said, I don't know, maybe this whole business thing, maybe open a coffee house. So I started researching how to do a business plan and Yada, yada, yada. I taught myself how to do a lot of it, start interviewing people and trying to understand business and specifically that business. And I borrowed $50,000 and from the bank, got an architect, picked a location. And literally December 3rd, 1994, we opened Not Just Coffee, my first business. We sold it a couple of years later. I got you know, accepted to medical school at UTMB the next year. I sold it and made a little bit of money to help with medical school a little bit. And then a couple of years later, Starbucks came into that same location. That's impressive. Before my time. I know. The fact that you researched, made a business plan, borrowed money, and started a business that most people would find that a bit intimidating, especially with not a business background. But you had that whole entrepreneurial spirit. I think that helps. Yeah, that does help. You're right. It does. So you also have a clinic in Haiti. Tell me about that. We have our church. One of our missions is health awareness. And so we also were collaborate with a lot of different organizations, you know, to do different goods. And so new missions organization is an organization that builds churches and provides schools and food and that kind of stuff for people in the Legon Plateau and outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So they came to our church and were trying to get us to sponsor children. So when they came in, we were like, okay, this is good. And so we did the little stuff at first. And then eventually, as we start going over there, we realized they could do a lot more. So we wanted to build a church, but they already had a lot of churches they were building in different villages. And as we were walking across part of their complex, we stumbled. And I was like, well, what is this? And it was like, well, this is where the earthquake was that literally tore up their medical clinic. And so I said, well, what happened to the medical clinic? And when they took me to the new one, I literally cried. It was so poorly done. It was curtains that were falling apart. All the walls were moldy and it just wasn't a place to take care of people. Their supplies were outdated and everything else. So I was like, I said, so instead of us building this church first, perhaps we build a medical clinic for them first. That's what they really needed. We went back home and we had an event and I called it, it's called God's Women Rock. And it's basically women of faith sort of coming together, putting their money where their mouth is to be philanthropic, to do good. And so we raised the money. And over the next year, they built the medical clinic in Haiti. And we usually would go back two times a year. It was finished right before Hurricane Matthew hit, which was a Category 5 hurricane in October. I think it was 2015 or 16. And it was able to help take care of people right afterwards. And nothing happened to it. It didn't blow away. It didn't fall apart. And so it has running well water attached to the building, mm-hmm. propane tanks for electricity and gas. So they have a beautiful clinic that takes care of about 100,000 people that it services over a year in that area, the Legon Plateau. 
and surrounding communities. And mostly it's prenatal care. It's sexually transmitted diseases. It's cuts and bruises, small stuff that they do a lot of. Okay. Uh, definitely needed. Yeah. So we hate it that we haven't with COVID. We haven't been able to get back there. How often do you usually go? Usually COVID? we would do uh, February and October. We would travel twice a year there. But yeah, we haven't been back. And they have their own issues with COVID right now. Sure. Before COVID, you were doing telemedicine. I know a lot of people now are doing telemedicine out of during the pandemic. Tell me about that aspect of your practice and how you did that before it was before everybody else was doing it. Yeah. In 2015, I think I read an article that was linked on Twitter someplace that was talking about technology and where we were going. You know, so I'm always looking for the next thing. And telemedicine, telehealth. Telemedicine is when you're actually seeing a physician, whatever. Telehealth is everything from the information provided to even the instruments now that they use that may be a stethoscope that's hooked to an app on your phone that can actually help you. So that's telehealth. So the telemedicine side was a friend of mine in Houston just started her company and was looking to get people to invest. And so I invested and started helping build that practice up, what it looked like on that orthopedic side. And it was really hard because a lot of people hadn't bought into it of what it looked like. And so now it's a whole new ballgame because everyone's doing telehealth. And I think it's definitely going to keep. I think I said back in 2016, eventually telemedicine will be the triage of medicine as we know it. And essentially that's what's happened. I wonder after the pandemic is over, what percentage of people would telemedicine be? What percentage of their practice after the pandemic is over? I think it'll be still very prominent because now people, um, society has gotten a taste of being virtual and comfortable with it because we've been sort of forced to do that. So I think people will be okay with telemedicine because it's one of convenience. I don't have to travel, drive 30 minutes to a medical center. I don't have to pay $30 to parking garage. I don't have to sit in someone's office for two hours before I see the physician. So convenience costs, a lot of insurances are now covering it, you know, and so therefore I can sit in my home, I can talk to you, you can sort of review everything else. And if I have to do labs or if I really do need to come in and, you know, have physical hands laid on me and or whatever else that can be done. But there's a lot that can be done through telemedicine before we can even touch you. So I think it's going to be a continuous thing and it's going to grow because insurance companies would rather have that forefront in your office and or your home than a brick and mortar that's a huge overhead cost. So you mentioned your book earlier, The Rules of Medical Professionals Guide to Success. Tell me how you came about writing it and we'll talk a little bit about it. I don't want to tell too much so people will actually go. Yeah. So The Rules of Medicine, I started writing actually in residency, you know, because it was like, why didn't anybody tell me this? I'm going through all this hell and no one told me that. No, No one told me the business side of medicine. No one taught me that. And it's like, you know, no one taught me about politics and, you know, in every field and I don't care if it's medicine or not, there's always politics involved. And so, you know, it's playing the game, learning to play the game of politics. It's learning to be the patient in the field. The flip side is about the flip side of what you do. And that's also in any field it doesn't have to just be in medicine. It's learning about self-care, like how do you step back and take a breath and take yourself out of that environment, which can sometimes be hostile, as we both know. Or it's not for your advantage, but you believe in yourself and take care of yourself, be it diet, exercise. And, you know, as a runner, is how do you take care of self-care? And then rule 34, pay it forward. How can I help the next person be better, know more, be more successful than I am? Because there's plenty of room at the top. There's no glass ceiling. It's an illusion. But nonetheless, it's the fact that 
my legacy will be helping thousands now to have a little bit more insight that may allow their medical training or career to be successful. Well, from your book that stood out to me, I will remember that there is an art to medicine as well as science and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. And I thought that was important because so often doctors or even like particularly medical students, residents, are so concerned about knowing everything and being the greatest as far as technique and surgery. And then they're awful to patients. They don't relate or they don't listen and get a key component of the history and physical. I think that's probably and get some bedside manners. You know how we tease about that. It's like people are like, that is something that's an art form, bedside manners. I think it's about being a good person. I think it's about being relatable to your patient, but it applies to life as well, right? Get some bedside manners. It's like manners in general. Like how can we be respectful? And really at such a time as this and what we're dealing with race relations as well as political propagandists, it is about get some bedside manners. How can I be respectful to you, even though we may have differences of opinions, you know, and how can I care for you by being compassionate and understanding and a listening ear and not missing the key things that so many people do? This makes you definitely a better physician, I think, and or person. One of your rules is trust no one. I learned early in my career, even outside of medicine, I've been burned. Can you tell me about the incident you spoke about in the book where one of the, the student or resident kind of stabbed back? Resident. Rule number one in my book, and even with writing the book and my editor, we went back and forth about what rules should be first. And it was very obvious to me that rule number one should be trust no one because we are competitive by nature. And I didn't know that going in. Because as a woman, you're wanting the acceptance, you're wanting to be part of the team, you're wanting mm-hmm. to play the game, you're wanting to do all of that. So you're thinking everyone's happy that you're there because you're happy to be there. But little did I know, my intern year at general surgery, I we were at the VA hospital and we would arrive at 4.30 in the morning, 4, 4.30 in the morning to do labs and x-rays and pull the dressings and do all this other stuff from general surgery. And so we had a neurosurgery, a general surgery resident, me being ortho transitional year and plastics. And so we sort of divided the team and he would get the labs and I would get the x-rays. I was ortho, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then we'd switch off. And so when we start presenting to our staff as we're walking around doing rounds, I would give the labs out. And so it was on one particular day, I was giving out the wrong labs, which eventually canceled every surgery that day. So my chief was upset. The staff was upset because it was a waste of the day. Mm-hmm. And it was a nurse that came to me later on that basically said, Dr. Sloan, you know, he's been giving you the wrong labs every morning, right? And I was like, what? Because at that time, every I, morning? Myself, every it wasn't morning. that one time. It was every, oh, wow. He, he had several, several days, but the day that we were doing it, that I knew about it because he canceled all the surgeries was the day I was presenting the patients that were going to surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he had been doing it for a while when we went back and looked at it, but the nurse that was the one that was really friendly to me to say, he's not have your back. You know, you've got to understand that he's trying to make himself look good, not make you look good. And it was an epiphany because again, I thought we're a team. We're trying to take care of patients, Mm -hmm. you know, but we're competitive by nature. We got to where we are to have better grades and the top scores and that kind of thing to get into the surgical field. So it taught me a lesson, not just because of, I should have looked at the labs myself and known, and it wasn't at that time everything was on computer. You still had to go down to the lab and get the get the labs. I'm old school, yeah. <laughs> I'm aging myself. Oh, Lord. But it taught me also that 
I was responsible to know if that patient's potassium was over four. I was responsible to know that that patient's sodium was under 130 when they were hyponatremic, you know. I was responsible because that was my patient assigned to me. So Mm -hmm. trust no one because patients' lives depended on it. But also trust no one because in this field, everyone is still competitive, even if they say they're not. So after that incident, what did you do differently? How did it change the dynamics? It was definitely a looking at everything. You know, it was like hypercritical to look at everything, double check, recheck. And so we have another thing says, you know, you measure twice and cut once, right? It was that. I would always double check everything. I guess in relation to that, you and the nurse had a good relationship. I know one of your owns is no the janitor's name. Know everyone and treat everyone with respect. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because if you were nasty to the nurse, you would have never known and you would have just been presenting labs, the wrong labs every day. Correct. So again, this does not just apply to medicine. It's everything. It's about respecting people, right? Who they are, no matter what field they're in, no matter what genre of life they come from, you know, background. And specifically, even at the VA hospital, this was true. But my mom, a nurse of 30 years at the time, 40 years now, 40 plus years, taught me, she says, nice to nurses because they're going to teach you the ropes, but you better know the janitor's name because they have the keys to every door and will open doors for you literally and figuratively, because they're also the people that go to every floor and talk to everybody. And so they basically have a pulse on everything in the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. And so they also become your greatest allies. So at the VA hospital, it was always really hard to get more than three cases done. You know, it's a government type of facility. You know that you can only get about three cases done. And if you're hustling and you got two rooms, maybe you can get six cases done. So the issue was always the turnover of the room. So I was nice to Mr. Johnson. I knew him. I knew his mom. She was one of the clerks on another floor. That a lot of people didn't know because they didn't ask. So when it came time to turn over the room, I was helping mop the floor with Mr. Johnson. Mm-hmm. And so by the end, I was doing four cases, sometimes five cases in a day. And uh, people the turnover didn't know faster. Turnover was faster because I respected and I knew the janitor's mm-hmm. name. So it was really about understanding people and, again, meeting them where they are. He didn't have to have a whole bunch of conversation. It was just the fact that I knew his name and said hello mm-hmm. every day. You recognize him as a person while I'm sure a lot of people just walk by him like he's just a gentleman. Right. And the white coat meant nothing because when it came down to it, we were both human beings. And sometimes the white coat means nothing because people, when I was a resident, with my white coat and my name on it, one of my patient's son thought I was transportation. So, yes. so I'm the white coat. <laughs> yeah. You know it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a recent TikTok that basically I got into the elevator and I had my scrubs on and it said, you know, Sonia Sloan, orthopedic surgeon, whatever. And I got into the elevator and it was a white gentleman and he looks at me, he says, oh, so you're a nurse. And I'm looking at him like, really? But it's that you could walk into the room. And I think I have a chapter in book two. It's about the hierarchy, too. And the patient was just like, can you get me a bedpan? And it was like, sure, I'll get you a bedpan. Helped him on it, cleaned him up. And then my nurse walks in. She's like, Dr. Sloan, what are you doing? And then he's like, oh, you're the doctor? He says, he goes, well, hell, any doctor that is willing to wipe my ass, I'll definitely allow it, sign her consent form to cut my foot off. You know, it was that. So it was the understanding of respecting people and meeting them what their needs are. That's true. In relationship, when I was a resident, I got along with most of the nurses. We had three female residents and some of the nurses didn't like 
one or the other female residents, but they looked out for me. Times I didn't have time to eat. They were like, sit down, you can have some of this. They fed me. When I was on the joint service, we used Coumadin, so we had to put in labs. And I forgot to put an order in for an INR PT. This lab is used to monitor the dosage of Coumadin. So, but the nurse, so I didn't want to wake you up. And I saw you didn't have an order in, so I put it in for you. Stuff like that made my night a lot better when I was on call. I know, it sure did. I see you nurses were the best friends. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell me about the story? You say basically karma is a bitch with patient that you had <laughs> in the ER. Yeah. Let me preference this with people like, oh, you're a first lady of a church or whatever else. I said, this book was not meant for church folk. Okay. So, you know, language in medicine is different, especially in the surgical field and that kind of stuff just lends to the credibility. So the book is somewhat a little explicit and let's just put it that way. But I was a fourth year. So I was operating on call to VA and we were able to come in for the call. So the Indian ER doctor calls me and says, uh, Dr. Sloan, you have a patient here and uh, I'm just going to warn you. And I was like, I said, okay. So I get there two in the morning and he's pretty much, excuse the explicit, F you, you nigger over and over again, you know, get away from me, you nigger, you know? So I was like, I said, Oh God, World War II vet, racist, sexist, didn't want anything. But lo and behold, I'm like, I'm your orthopedic surgeon. You have a hip fracture. You need surgery. We're going to have to admit you for to be clear for surgery and take you tomorrow to get your hip replaced. Get away from me. Just get away from me, you know, kind of thing. So here comes the Filipino nurse with a little bit of Ativan and Haldol. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, here comes the black security guard. <laughs> and like in one fell swoop. He takes us all down. He had a cane hidden under the leg. We didn't see. He hit me in my arm. So mm-hmm. I'm like, went down, hurt my arm. He pretty much bitch slapped the Filipino nurse that was giving him the drugs. So she went down and he kicked the cop with a good leg that wasn't broken. Mm-hmm. And he went down. So we all sort of, you know, pulled ourselves together off the floor and we were like, no one say anything. <laughs> no one tell anybody about this. You know? <laughs> so I come to work the next morning, pre-opt him did what I need to do to take him to surgery. But of course, in that environment, everyone had heard about the story by the time it was time for surgery at 8 a.m. So my chief of staff calls me in and he says, I apologize. That was very rude of this guy, you know, and insensitive. And you don't have to take care of him anymore. We have somebody else. Another resident will take over his care and you don't have to do the surgery. I was like, well, I want to do the surgery. He's going to be asleep. Get out of work. I've done the pre-op and work He's like, no, 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 it's okay. Your post-call, go ahead and go home. And we're sorry. We really, they made a very big deal about it. You know, they were very apologetic because I'd also been hit, you know? So it was like, okay. So I'm like, I'm not going home because what? Play the game, right? You know not to go home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I went back to clinic and I'm whatever. And I hear code blue, OR5, code blue, OR5. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And I take off running thinking, I'm like, what did I do wrong? What did I forget? What did I, something happened Mm -hmm. that I thought was my fault, right? So I get to the room and you know he's intubated and they're doing chest compressions and they couldn't get him back. And so the thing I didn't tell anybody was the night before, <laughs> as we were sending him up to the room, I put him in his own room and I was a little slow to make sure the pain pump was there. Mm-hmm. But I looked at him, I said, you're a mean son of a bitch. And I said, you know what goes around, comes around. You better be nice to people. He's mm-hmm. like, get away from me. You just get away from me. So my doctor, Dr. Johnson, said, he's like, what did you say to this man? What happened? What else happened? And I said, 
don't know. I just told him he was a mean SOB. What goes around comes around, you know, it's karma, right? He has lived a very mean life <laughs> and invoked it on other people. Mm-hmm. It was amazing that he had to a potter's grave, potter's, you know, buried. No one came to claim him. Really? No family. No other. He was a lonely old man. But yeah, so karma, so like you've got to be careful in medicine. It's very humbling. And what goes around does come back around eventually. Yeah. Good energy, bad energy. That's so true. You mentioned you thought you had done something wrong with him. In another instance in your book, you were talking about your intuition, about something told you. And I always say something is God like whispering to me, like, you need to do this to go back and check on one of your post-op patients. Yeah, the intuition, I think, is so intuitive that we don't always listen to that small little still voice. It's that nudge. It's the circumstances lining up right and you just trying to read the room, if you will. And so I was at our level one trauma. I was going to debride a foot, a diabetic foot. I had everything in my pocket, beta dime, tin blade, all the dressing, everything else in my pocket to go debride a toe. And the nurse calls me and says, Dr. Sloan, she said, you probably should have come by and, and post off this patient. It was a thyroid patient. I was like, I said, okay, not a problem. I will. And then so I said, is there anything wrong? She's like, no, no, no. Just in your time coming. But normally she doesn't call mm-hmm. the nurse. Normally she wouldn't call her. So it sort of stuck with me. And literally as I'm going down the elevator to the ER, and I'm just thinking, I was like, why? Why would she call me? What is that about? And I said, maybe he's more sick than she's saying. And I called back upstairs and she says, no, no, no. Patient's doing fine. Don't worry about it. When you get done, just come upstairs. So I said, okay. And literally I just, it could, wouldn't let me go. It was like something just stopped me dead in my tracks. To the point where I didn't take the elevator rack up. I took the stairs four flights up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Walked in the room and you talk about, you know, cue signal, cue sign, tongue out to the side, edematous, no airway whatsoever. Huge hematoma mm-hmm. on top of her neck that she had bled out around her thyroidectomy. And so I started coding her. And so they, by the time they called the code blue, the chief came in and they said, she's like, we need to get some supplies and open up and get this hematoma. <laughs> I reached in my pocket, pulled everything out. So we literally did minor surgery and nothing. Mm-hmm. The hematoma got out and got, was able to tube her and then wheel her back into surgery with me still doing chest compression. Can you explain so one to my non-medical listeners? Oh, <laughs> if you open your mouth <laughs> and mix an O, I know, right? If you open your mouth sort of wide, not, not necessarily too big, and you stick your tongue out to the four o'clock position or the eight o'clock position, it makes a, looks like a cue. So that's usually when we say patients are not doing well, <laughs> if not already dead. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the cue sign, definitely. So, yeah, and I think at M&M, it was one of those, you were going to get grilled, and I just knew I was going to be humiliated and embarrassed or whatever else. And he was a military guy. He was like, Dr. Sloan, tell us about this patient. So I did. And he's like, and so what made you go upstairs? And I told him, I shrugged my shoulders like, intuition, something just told me to go. And so he made a point. He's like, sometimes in medicine, it's not hard, cold facts and numbers or whatever else. It's understanding the art of medicine. That sometimes it's in between of just knowing the intuition of what to do and when to do it. That's the practice of medicine. That's true. One more thing, about, life, awesome. <laughs> one more thing about your book. You mentioned a couple of times, I think when your mother was a patient and when you like oh. had miscarriage and how it's different being a patient, especially as a doctor, which I've been there. I just had surgery like a month ago and I've had a lot of other surgery. I've had a lot of mainly orthopedic stuff. 
it's just it's different being on the other side, but it makes you empathize with your patients, makes you understand when they tell you that they didn't do something. It's not that they're being lazy or that they're not doing what you told them to do, but it's like they can or you realize how hard it is for them maybe to do a task that you maybe assign for them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, empathy is hard because people are like, oh, I, I feel sorry for the patient that's sympathetic. Empathetic is when you actually can feel and put yourself in that position, right? And so being on the other side of the table, I said on the other side of the blade, being a patient and being helpless, essentially. You know, if you're under sedation, anybody and everybody else, you mm-hmm. have no control over your body or anything else. And so it's a very humbling spot to be in. But I definitely benefits doctors to understand, doctors and nurses, to be on that other side, to understand what it takes to be the patient and why it's so important for our compassion and to have the listening ear. And on that given day, I'd had the miscarriage and had a missed miscarriage. So I had to have a DNC, which was even harder because mm-hmm. it was that whole taken away from your body kind of thing. So I was emotional and I was very traumatized by the whole thing. And the doctor that did it actually is really a friend of mine now. And it has to be done at this hospital because that was the only operative time that she had. Well, lo and behold, that was the hospital I was on rotation at. Mm-hmm. I know I was on foot and ankle. I was actually on foot and ankle service. And so my team was there me as well. And I just didn't want them to see me. So she did it late in the day thinking, you know how the pre-op area, no, everyone's there early morning. But as the day goes on, it gets more quiet. So we did it late in the day. And I remember coming out and one of my nurses that I always, I'm usually doing orders with and joking with and talking to, who I did respect and we had a good rapport. I came out and I remember waking up and sort of coming to myself and trying to figure out, you know, what had just happened kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I instantly put on the white coat. I instantly put on the surgeon's cap, asking yeah. details of like what happened and how much blood loss and all this other stuff. And then she says, whoa, whoa, whoa there, Dr. Song. She goes, today... You're just on mm-hmm. She's like, I want you to be the patient. And then so, you know, we talked. And so she's like, I'm sorry for your loss. And even today, it's still hard, you know, because mm-hmm. that was taken away. And she says, today, I allow you to be the patient. I give you permission to be the patient, not the doctor. And I needed that mm-hmm. because we are so ingrained in this title and in this position that it's hard to give up sometimes. But when you don't have a choice, yeah, you don't have a choice. And she's jovially said, you know, I'll let you have what you want if you write for your own Demerol and Finnegan, you know, whatever, you know, kind of thing. You sign off on this order kind of thing because I had privileges at the hospital. So, you know, we had a moment. But everyone there was so nice and respectful. The same guy that I'd helped with transportation to take patients out to the car after knee replacements and you know, all this other stuff. He never spoke a word. He treated me as every other patient. Very nice, very kind, never asked questions, never looked at my paperwork. You know, it was not about that. It was just about me being the patient. But the empathy of others that you have to understand where they are in uh, hard times when patients are getting cut. Sometimes that's the first time they've ever had surgery or that idea of being out of control and out Mm -hmm. of uh, their body is very, very scary and anxiety. And sometimes we as physicians and surgeons forget that in those moments of just getting stuff done to Mm -hmm. get on to the next case. So yeah, empathy is major, major, major. It is. So, but you're the mom of three in addition to everything else you do. Tell me a little bit about your kids. Oh my gosh. That is the greatest job, parenthood. Being mom is a love like you will never know. Being a mother 
as a title that is earned, <laughs> but it's a privilege as well. So I have a 15 year old, 13 year old and an eight, almost nine year old son. So I have two girls and a son and they are busy than I am. Is that they need their own schedule and all this other stuff. I'm just the driver. I was teasing mm-hmm. to one of our docs today and said, I'm the Uber driver when I'm home and not working. <laughs> so where can people find you? Your book, social media, inspiring medical students, inspiring yeah, orthopedic surgeons, other physicians. Where can they find you? I'm, I'm all things uh, pretty much Sonia Sloan, MD, S-O-N-Y-A. S-L-O-A-N-M-D dot com at Twitter, at Instagram, at Facebook, <laughs> at, at TikTok, at Snapchat. <laughs> so all those things. And then the book Snapchat is... Uh, you know, yes, my girls, I have to be on there because I got to see what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't really Snapchat much, but I got to see what they're doing. Yeah. So I'm on there the right to see. But And then the book is at therulesofmedicine.com as well, or on my website. Any last minute pearls, the words of wisdom for my listeners? Oh my gosh. I think I was talking with a dear friend recently and he and I were having a conversation about, you know, as we get older, life is really about legacy living. What are we doing to, mm-hmm. when it's all said and done, what will people say, but more or less what footprint would you have left here on earth? So legacy living, make sure what you're doing is with your passion and with intention to maybe help the greater good and help somebody else. Awesome. Thank you again for joining me. And my listeners can't see you, but Dr. Sloan is on call in her scrub (laughs) pad, in her scrubs at the hospital. So I appreciate you taking time. Just the part. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy. O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love, L O V E. Again, We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love. Thank you and please tune in again.